Now let us open our Bibles to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We will read together the first six verses as we continue to look at Christ's own letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, actually the Roman province of Asia in Asia Minor. Will you bow with me in prayer? And now, Father, we who have a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord, are eager to hear your word. And we pray that that eagerness will grow and that we will learn what it means to live all of life under the authority of your word, willingly submissive because we belong to Christ who purchased us with his own shed blood. And we pray, Father, for those who are here who know nothing of grace And we would ask that you would, in your kindness, use even this service of worship today and the word that is proclaimed, that those who are lost and undone would be drawn out of darkness into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And these things we ask, praying that now you will illumine the page, that we may understand what is given to to us here by divine inspiration. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word, Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6. This is the Word of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. And strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white." For they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please be seated. Sardis was a church in the capital of ancient Lydia, which was a very important city in the Roman province of Asia. There had been a major earthquake there in A.D. 17, but Tiberius had rebuilt the city, and Sardis was a major location of the emperor cult. Ramsey the archaeologist says Sardis was one of the great cities of primitive history. In the Greek view, it was long the greatest of all cities. And Hamer, in his book on the city, says the city had a reputation for strength that was belied by actual events because even though it was a fortress city, a couple of times during its history it had been overcome because the population had been complacent. Well, complacency is the word that should be written over the entrance into the door of the church at Sardis. As for the church of Sardis, there's no one sin that is pointed out to us here. But there was obviously very great spiritual decline. All seems very peaceful in this church at Sardis. Sardis was peaceful. 
Sardis was as peaceful as a graveyard. Sardis, with the exception of a few faithful members, is called by Christ here dead. Now, he doesn't mean that it's absolutely dead. He does speak of those few embers that are still alive within the church. But you would look at the church of Sardis, at least from the perspective of Christ, and you would say, this is a dead church. Evidently, the process of decline had been so subtle that it went unnoticed by the leadership and the membership of the church, and that is a terribly frightening thing because that's how spiritual decline actually happens. So the first thing we want to see as we come to the text is a church can become a spiritual graveyard. A church can become a spiritual graveyard. Christ's diagnosis is the church has nothing but a name, a reputation. Look at verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, it's a great reputation to have to be alive as a church or as a Christian when it's a true reputation, but it was not true here. They were undoubtedly very active and prosperous and flourishing and successful in the world's eyes. People would praise a church like this. People would sit up and take notice. But it was all superficial. What was seen was only skin deep. And so Jesus offers only rebuke in verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. They lack the essential element. They are deluded. Now, what might people have seen when they looked at the church at Sardis? Programs. Lively music, a large membership, exciting services, much talk about spiritual things, maybe even a thriving mercy ministry in their midst. Everybody had a good opinion of this church, which is always a problem. But inside, they trifled with God, they abused holy things, they were deluded, complacent, dead. These people were not real with God. They seemed alive, but they were in spiritual torpor. Dead churches are not necessarily empty churches. Dead churches are not necessarily dull churches. They're often very full and sometimes quite noisy. But as Dr. Porthrus says, Vern Porthrus, the essence of the church is not its programs, buildings, past achievements, reputation, institutional greatness, or formal doctrinal correctness, but it's spiritual life. This comes through fellowship with the living Christ and is demonstrated through the seriousness of repentance and obedience. So people looking in may not have seen what really was there. Sardis probably lacked nothing in material things. They were probably a sophisticated people, but people would not say, this is a dead church, but Jesus does. Now, I want you to apply that to yourselves just as I've been applying it to myself. Apply it personally because the church is what we are. The church is what I am and what you are. The church is what we are. Do you remember how in Matthew chapter 23, when the Lord Jesus is bringing his woes upon the Pharisees, that he says this in Matthew 23, 27, and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
godliness. So one may have the power, the form of godliness, but deny the power of godliness in his life. So let me make something plain. There are those who consider a church dead when they walk in and there's not a lot of emotional hype or because there's a liturgy or the great hymns of the faith. I actually heard someone say, my, the spirit really moved in our service this morning. The preacher didn't even get to preach. That's nonsense. Those are the vain criteria of American revivalism. By spiritual life, we mean something much more solid than this. We mean that the legitimate forms of worship are enlivened by the Holy Spirit. And the church loves God and loves His truth and loves to worship His name. And they love the Word and they love one another and they pursue holiness and they take the gospel to the world. That's a live church. That's a live Christian. When we gather together in our worship services, my great prayer is that God meet us here. And that you and I can walk away saying, we have met God. That he has inhabited the praises of his people. That the liveliness that we know and experience is the Holy Spirit's work within the heart. So that we can say, we have met with God. We are communing with God. Now that's a live church. And that's a live Christian. So it's possible for a man to be dead while he is still alive. And I think that's true of this church here in Sardis. So moving along in the text, the second thing we see is that Christ calls us to life. Now, all you have to do is read through the text and hear the words that will stand out to you. Jesus says, wake up, strengthen, remember, obey or keep, and repent. And we read in verse 3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So Sardis once had life. They were a well-founded church. And in verse 2, the metaphor changes from death to sleep because he says, wake up. So you get the point. There's some life still in the congregation, so he can say, wake up. Sardis is not aware of her own spiritual condition. Sardis, the Christians there, need to arouse themselves. As we read in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12, verse 12, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So the condition of this church, please see, is unspeakably wretched. It is wretched. And that means that the condition of individual souls in Sardis is wretched. The church is her people, and it gives us a picture of how a false church develops in history as over against the true. So Jesus says, Jesus says to this church in verse 3, Remember then, remember then what you received and heard. He wants them to remember. Think back. Remember what you once knew, what you once believed, how the word worked within your heart, how the church was in the past when it was well-founded. Now, once again, I asked myself the question as I was studying this text, where were the leaders of this church? Where were the officers? Where were the members? Where were the ministers? The minister of this church must have been as dead as a doornail. 
If the angel of the church, and this is a debated point, if the angel of the church means the pastor, then certainly he's included in this. You know, you have a right to expect that your ministers love Jesus and pursue Scripture with overwhelming passion and seek to be holy and prayerful and to walk faithfully and to be zealous and devoted in the use of their gifts. Now, your ministers are sinners. We struggle just as you do. But nonetheless, you have the right to expect life as your ministers exercise their calling because we have the highest calling to which a man could be called. May God deliver the church from dead preachers, busy with many things, building their own empires, but not consecrated in the very thing that should characterize the minister, which is prayer and the word and holiness of life. This man undoubtedly would have had no fervor for these things. Or maybe he was a lazy man. There's no place for laziness in the ministry. In any case, he had no fire in his belly when he studied the Word, and he had no message for the people when they gathered together on the Sabbath day. He must have had no relish for God's Word, no willingness to dig in and to study and prepare, and that's the minister's main calling. And so you see how I apply this text to myself before I come and preach it to you on a Sunday morning. So let me ask now about you. I've been pretty ruthless with myself. Let me ask you some questions. This church must have been like its preacher. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes there's an ungodly preacher, a godly congregation, or a very godly preacher, ungodly. But nonetheless, love for Jesus and the things of God is lacking in this church. Love is the fundamental principle of holiness. If you want to know why I'm not pursuing holiness the way that I should, it's because I don't understand the love of God for me and I don't love God in return. Love is the fundamental principle. Pursuit of holiness all hinges on love. And so that's not found here, and these people are drifting. And they have an illusion of spiritual vitality while they are drifting. She has a name that she lives, but it's just a bare reputation and nothing else. This church does not love the word. They are not pursuing holiness, might and main. They are not fighting the Lord's battles. They are worldly. They are fleshy, fleshly. So, you are the church, and here's the question for you. Are you pursuing these things? Are you pursuing the scriptures? Are you, as a Christian, communing with God in prayer? Are you attempting to be faithful in daily living? Are you confessing his name? Are you bearing witness for Christ? Are you believing and repenting? Do you love God? Do you love his church? Are you eager to worship and to hear the word and partake of the sacrament? Or are you friends with the world and living for things that perish? What about you? What about me? Am I more interested in how people view me than how Christ views me? And so you too may have a reputation, but you need to wake up because your life is empty and you're living delusional lives and you need self-examination. And the message is you had better wake up. That's what Jesus says to the church. So are you drifting? Is there someone here who is a believer in Jesus, but you are in spiritual decline? And so you can imagine the church at Sardis. Little concern for the word or for doctrine, little zeal for the truth. Many are out there doing their their soccer when soccer time comes. You, you You know I'm being a little anachronistic here. 
This is what the church today would look like if it were the church of Sardis. Soccer time comes, you don't see the family anymore. They don't care anything about the priorities that God says should be the priorities. And when they came to worship, it was not really with passion to worship God. And when they did works, they were humanistic and not spirit-directed. So he says, wake up. Wake up and strengthen what is about to die. Recall what you've heard from the beginning. What power then, what life then, what joy in Christ then. But you can't live on past experiences. What about now? What about the present? So Jesus is so serious about this with this church that the third thing we see is impending judgment. A failure to be watchful, the Lord will come like a thief. Notice verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So a thief. A thief doesn't say, now wake up, I'm about to rob you. A thief comes unexpectedly. You don't know when the thief is going to come. Read in the newspaper or somewhere recently of a guy that went into a house to rob them and stayed under a bed for three days before they found him. So it must have been a really clean house. No sneezing or anything to let him... So, you know, you don't know when the thief is coming, do you? You just don't know. Well, Jesus says, when I call you from spiritual sloth, you better hear, because if you don't hear, I'm going to come like a thief. You're not going to know when I come. Now, Sardis, the city, was a seemingly impregnable fortress, as I mentioned to you, and twice the city was captured, probably at night. So it was a large, fortified, wealthy, complacent city, and now the church follows suit. And the judgment here, very possibly, is this. It seems to me reasonable to think that when the Lord comes to this church, and they won't know that he's come or is coming, They'll not even know when he has removed their candlestick. You want to go on this way? Well, go on. You won't even notice. Before long, you won't even be a true church of Jesus Christ anymore. I won't be in your presence at all. Not by way of the Holy Spirit's saving work. Just by way of judgment. So just drift away. You want to drift? Just drift. Another generation or so, you will have drifted completely away. And whole denominations have done this, and many local congregations and countless numbers of individuals have drifted. You once were a Christian church, but over time, all that will be left is a name. There's nothing there. None of Christ, none of his spirit, savingly at work. And so I say, especially to you young people, listen, young people, do not let this happen to this church. When you are the leaders and your present leaders are in heaven, what your pastor has preached from this text this morning is preached to you and to your generation. Continue a lively love for Jesus and his truth and continue faithfulness in this church in word and prayer and worship. So you see, fourthly, the importance of a faithful few. The the importance of a faithful few. You can understand if that's the way this church is, it's fairly important that at least there are a few people there that care, that really care. And so we read in verse 4, 
you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So having kept their garments, their personal lives undefiled, this means that many in the church have defiled their garments, their personal lives. The pleasures of the world mean more to them than to the Lord. They must have been going along with their culture, but there are certain people there that aren't. They are not defiling their lives. So how important to develop for you and me to have that kind of character? How important to develop the kind of Christian character that stands, though others do not, do not defile your garments means that you do not defile your life. And then the Lord Jesus comes to those who are going to be faithful and he gives promises. I read some of those promises. You are going to be dressed in white. That's a wonderful promise. It's right there in verse 4. Walk with me in white. Walk with me. You remember that Adam was privileged. God came and walked with him before he fell into sin in the garden in the cool of the day. They fellowshiped together. So he's saying, I'm going to fellowship with you in your white garment. Dennis Johnson says of that garment, the link between purity in the present and white robes in the future shows that the life motivated by hope is shaped by the goal for which we wait. Because victors hope for white wedding garments, they will strive for purity here and now. For they are worthy, it says, not of their own merit, but they're walking out of the fullness of Christ's life. And they have a name that will never be blotted out. Sardis had a name. True believers cannot be lost. It's been pointed out that erasure from God's book was the curse called upon apostates by Jews. But that curse will never come upon the true believer. And then he says that he will confess, Jesus will confess the names of the faithful before his Father in heaven. It's there in verse 5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I turn to Matthew chapter 10, because even though you know these words, I'd like for you to see them with your own eyes. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33, Jesus says this, and interestingly enough, it's in a context that deals with persecution. But he says in Matthew 10, 32, So everyone who acknowledges me... Before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says to those faithful in Sardis, in that day to come, I'm going to say to my Father, these are the ones you gave me. These are the ones I purchased. They did not defile themselves with worldliness, their lives evidence saving grace. And he says, your name will be indelibly written and will be spoken by Jesus. Now, I'm going to say to you that verses 4 through 6, I believe, present a real challenge to our sanctification, to our growth in grace. That it puts before us those things for which we should long, fellowship with him, purity of life, 
a hope that is before us that will not disappoint. Those are the things that are found here, aren't they? Those are the things that actually will help to grow us in grace and move us along in our Christian lives, will they not? But are those the things that fill my mind and fill my heart, and are they the longings of my soul and my affections? Eric Alexander rightly said somewhere, you cannot ground your hope in the church. That's true. But he also said, you can't excuse your condition by the church. And so those who are here in this dead church could not excuse their condition because the church around them is dead. Which leads me to the next thing you see in the text, the fifth point, the importance of hearing. The importance of hearing. Again, he says in verse 6, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, in verse 1, Jesus defines himself, speaks of himself as in this way, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And without going into detail and looking at certain passages, Revelation 5, 6, Isaiah 11, 2, the passage that was read this morning by Joel from Zechariah. Let me just give you the bottom line. The seven spirits is a way of speaking of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit, in other words, is perfect, seven, and manifold, seven. So when Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and notice that it's not only to Sardis, but to the churches, which includes us, It is an alarming thing to consider that it is possible for a church and it is possible for a Christian to grieve the blessed Holy Spirit of God. Isn't that the most grievous thing we can think of? That we can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He indwells us. We are his people We are his temple. And when we are not desirous of walking faithfully, daily believing and repenting, seeking purity of life, according to the purity of the gospel itself, then we grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom we have been sealed for the day of redemption. I really want you to take a moment to think about that. Let it sink in. That the blessed Holy Spirit who has taken the gospel of the shed blood of Jesus Christ has opened your heart, has given to you saving faith so that you can embrace Jesus and have fellowship with him and know that your sins are forgiven and your heart is clean, that we can so drift in our living that we are grieving the blessed, gentle, saving spirit of the living God. So right now, the question that I want to ask is a question that I once heard Alan Redpath ask. It's a question to the church, but it's a question also to me as an individual and to you as an individual. This was his question. What is there happening here that cannot be explained in simply human terms? Let me give you the question again. What is there happening here or happening in your life, happening in this church, happening in your life? What is there happening here that cannot be explained simply in human terms? You see, Sardis seemed alive, but most everything there could be explained on human terms. 
If they had programs, they were not driven by the Holy Spirit. They were driven by the flesh. If they did evangelism, they really didn't care for the glory of God. It was driven by, who knows, longing for numbers or bolstering their reputation. They were not driven by the understanding that there's something supernatural going on in the church and something supernatural going on in my life. So in a truly alive church, you say, you know, that changed heart, that repenting life, that deed of mercy, that answer to prayer, that sermon that gripped my soul or changed my way of thinking or acting, that generous giving, that missionary enthusiasm, that discerning discipline, that and more simply has no human explanation. (laughs) This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the church's life. And so I ask you the question, what is going on in your heart and in your life? And as a believer, you should be able to answer the question, What things are happening that grow you, mature you, change you? What is happening in your life that simply cannot be explained in human terms? But you say it only has a supernatural explanation. Only God could do this. And an alive church should be able to answer that question. And a living Christian should be able to answer that question. You really should. So let me finally bring to us, sixthly, five evidences of a changed life that are found in this text. If there are those things happening that can only be explained because the Holy Spirit is at work, how will it evidence itself? How will it manifest itself? Well, there are five things in this passage. Five evidences of a changed heart in this text. First of all, if the Spirit of God is really at work, then when you hear the challenge of God's Word, you will wake up. That's what Jesus says in verse 2. Wake up. Seeing the reality about God and ourselves. This, by the way, this term, wake up, probably has military overtones. Here was Sardis, this great fortress. They thought they were impregnable. And yet, twice in their history... They had left openings in the breaches, and they were not awake, and they were not alert. Maybe Jesus is saying, with that history in mind, you're that kind of church too. You have all kinds of openings in the walls. You're letting all kinds of things in. You'd better wake up, and you'd better set sentinels and set guards. So if you are Christ's, then when you hear the word proclaimed, and you hear it attack some area or encourage some area of your heart, then you grip it, and you wake up, and you begin to live it out. And then there's strengthening. You will be strengthened as you go on. He says in verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So all their activity at Sardis was empty, And essentially, Jesus is saying, become real with God. Stop playing games. Prize the things that you ought to prize. Prize the things that you have not prized and that have not been the part of your life that they should be. 
Strengthen those. You're weak right now. You need strengthening. Start doing your spiritual calisthenics. And then he says, remember. Verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Think back. Think back when the word was proclaimed and you heard it and it went down into the heart and it changed your life. And think back when you had joy in the Holy Spirit. Think back when you wanted to live faithfully and let that be an attack upon your spiritual decline. Remember, but as I said, you can't live on the basis of prior experiences. You live on the basis of the truth of God's word on his promise and that enables you to continually have new experiences of God's faithfulness in your life. So wake up, be strong, remember, but also, if the Spirit of God is at work, then you will begin to obey. We see it here again in verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. I use the word obey, the word here is keep. Keep it, keep it, keep it. Now did you notice something about this church, this letter to this church? Did you notice, and it will be true of Laodicea as well, there are no issues that are mentioned here about external, external opposition from the world. Nothing mentioned here. Do you know why? I think it should be rel- relatively apparent. Maybe they're so worldly and they are so at peace with the world, their Christianity does nothing to provoke the world. Actually, let me tell you, as I see the decline in culture... I've had an encouraging thought that maybe as we see the decline in culture and we see Christianity being attacked in various ways, maybe the reason for that is because there's enough genuine Christianity at work in this country that it's worthy of of being attacked. It's provoking. Whether that's true or not, we need to obey. It's a simple matter, isn't it? Hard, but it's simple. Obey. And then we have this great word that seems to be missing from Christian vocabulary today, again found in verse 3. If you are a believer and the Spirit of God is at work sanctifying you and growing you and maturing you, then you and I will learn how to repent. Verse 3, remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. And repent means I was walking this way. God has in his word arrested me and has shown me what is wrong and I turn by God's grace and I begin to walk this way, the way he wants me to go. And repentance in the Christian life is ongoing, it is daily, it is every day. So there are five evidences of a changed life. If the Spirit of God is at work, you will wake up, you will be strengthened, you will remember, you will obey and you will repent and they're all found in this text. These then are the vital signs of the Christian life or of the Christian church. The opposite of these things will be pride and vanity of mind, sloth, negligence, and love of the world. As believers, we want to know the extent where there's remaining sin in our lives, and we want it dead at our feet. We want to kill it. As John Owen said, you had better be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Let not our spiritual life only be 
external, skin deep, a matter of profession only and not possession. May God help us that we will never hear the rattle of bones in this place, in this church. Has not the Spirit made us alive? And the frightening thing about this church, this church at Sardis, the frightening thing about it, you better hear, the frightening thing about the church at Sardis is that people just don't seem to care. They're unconcerned. They don't care. So what a call for me to search my heart. What a call for us to search our collective heart. What a call for every believer in Jesus here for you to search, to ask the Spirit of God to search your heart. Now, let me be quick to say, I really do not believe that what characterizes the church at Sardis characterizes Covenant Presbyterian Church. I really do see things in this church, and there's no other explanation but the Holy Spirit is alive and well in our midst. I really do not believe that these things at Sardis characterize the church, but it is a warning of what can happen. I do not think that what we read here about Sardis characterizes this church, but it may, it may well characterize some individuals here. So to you, the word comes, repent. What may characterize many of us, too many of us, is this off and on pattern in the Christian life. You know what I mean? Man, I hear a sermon, it fires me up. I live well for two weeks. Fits and starts, fits and starts. I walk well for a few weeks, I drop off. On and off, off and on. And that's a very dangerous approach. And it's not necessary. If we are living faithfully under word and sacrament and the fellowship of God's people pervaded by prayer, it's just not necessary. So before I say one final thing to the church, let me say there may be there's people here today that you don't know Christ. We talk about a church here that seems low in spiritual life, but there's some spiritual life there. But let me say there may be people here today and you have no spiritual life at all. Your heart is guilty before a holy God. You have never trusted in Christ alone for your redemption, for your salvation. And I point you to Jesus. I hold him up as the once crucified, once for all crucified Lord who now has been raised from the dead and who through his minister even now says to you, come and welcome, come to me in faith and I will, I will forgive your sins. And then you will have life, and this life can begin to change and transform you as he longs for the church at Sardis to be transformed. So what is the Spirit saying to the church at Covenant this morning? What is the Spirit saying? The Spirit of God from this text is saying, watch, 
Churches all around us have fallen asleep and are drifting. Some have drifted to the point that after a few generations, they're no longer true churches at all. But the Spirit says to the church this morning, watch, stay alert, keep in step with the Spirit. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.